So we are in an extended study on the Old Covenant. We have been dealing with this for some time now. I didn't go back and look at when the first sermon I preached on the Old Covenant was, but I imagine it was probably like John a couple of years ago now. And we've been, we've covered a lot. We've covered the nature of the Old Covenant as a covenant of works, that it was promised, it promised blessing for obedience and it promised cursing for disobedience. And so whether the Israelites were blessed or cursed depended uh, not upon the righteousness of another, but upon their own obedience and fidelity to the Old Covenant. And in that sense, it was a works-based covenant. It was nevertheless gracious because A, God condescended to enter into covenant with them at all, which he wasn't obligated to do, but it also contained much grace. It contained the promise and the uh, it contained much teaching about the nature of grace and the coming Messiah. And it made provision for God to dwell among them in his tabernacle so that they could have a taste and a glimpse of what life with God would be like. And although it was not to the same degree as it would eventually be in new covenant fullness with the Spirit of God not just dwelling in our midst but within us, though it wasn't certainly what it will be at the end of all things when the new Jerusalem descends from heaven and the kingdoms of this world become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. There is no need for the sun or the moon for the Lord Himself is the light. Nevertheless, in some degree and in some measure, it was a foretaste of what it was like living with God. In various ways, the Old Covenant was nevertheless gracious. God gave His people laws, and we looked at the various types of laws. Uh, Moral, civil, ceremonial is how the Reformed tradition typically breaks it down. And we know that it was a moral issue whether or not the Old Covenant Israelites kept the civil law or kept the ceremonial law. Uh, The old theologians who made these distinctions weren't dunces. They, they knew quite well that it was a moral issue whether the civil law was kept or the ceremonial law was kept. But the distinction is between those laws which are universally applicable for all people everywhere at all times, and those laws they categorized as moral laws. And they recognized that there were laws given to Israel simply uh, as a civic society, as a nation. And Within that nation state alone were the civic laws applicable. And likewise, there were ceremonial laws which were given to the Old Covenant Israelites alone. So there was moral, civil, ceremonial. We continued from there into a a bit of a study on some of the civil laws. And we made some applications uh, to uh, even our modern societies. And we saw that really in the West, a lot of uh, British common law is actually based on principles of general equity drawn from Old Covenant civic law. We're going to actually circle back around and have a closer look at theonomy at some point and whether nations nowadays should be governed in exactly the same way as the Old Covenant nation of Israel was and so on and so forth. We've looked at uh, the tabernacle. We looked at its phys- the physical tabernacle and the various furnishings. And we looked at the priests and their garments and their ordination and we looked uh, most recently at the various types of offerings 
Tonight we're beginning a study of the Old Covenant calendar. So what would a year look like living as an Israelite under the Old Covenant? And we're in Leviticus 23. I read the first three verses for you. Verses 1 and 2 say, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, These are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. They are my appointed feasts. And then it goes on and it lists the Sabbath, the Passover, the Feast of First Fruits, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Trumpets, and so on and so forth. And God willing, we'll come to each of these in due time. But tonight, we start with the first one which is mentioned, namely the Sabbath. So tonight we'll look at a few things about the Sabbath, beginning with this. The Sabbath was instituted at creation and was therefore universally applicable. In Genesis chapter 2 and verse 3, we read that God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all His work that He had done in creation. Matthew Henry says, It is only God's appointment that can make time holy. For He is Lord of time, and as soon as ever He had set its wheels a-going, It was He that sanctified and blessed one day above the rest. Man may by His appointment make a good day, but it is God's prerogative to make a holy day. Nor is anything sanctified but by the stamp of His institution. So we could say we're going to have a picnic on Tuesday, but we can't say Tuesday is going to be a holy day. All right, this is the, where our word holiday comes from, by the way. Holy day. But never mind that. We can, we can, we can say, okay, the banks and the stores are going to close down on such and such a day and everyone can have a day off. That's fine. But we can't really actually make a day holy unto the Lord, can we? We can't actually take an object and say, now this is a holy object. Things and time, days become holy by God's appointment. This is Matthew Henry's point. And as soon as ever God had set time's wheels a-going, as Matthew Henry puts it, it was God that sanctified and blessed one day above the rest, according to Genesis 2 and verse 3. All the holy days that we're going to look at in this portion of our Old Covenant series in the coming weeks were holy by God's appointment, of course. But the Sabbath is unique among the holy days that we'll study in that it was a holy day prescribed not only for the Old Covenant people of Israel, but was instituted at creation and was therefore applicable to all nations even prior to the Old Covenant. While the rest were added at the institution of the Old Covenant and were appointed therefore only for the people under the Old Covenant. This is significant because it puts the Sabbath in the category of universally applicable laws, which are not only for the people of the Old Covenant. Obviously, that means that we have to ask the question, is the Sabbath then applicable to us in the New Covenant? And we'll come to that question toward the end of tonight's sermon. But for now, I simply want to point out that God used His prerogative at the beginning of all things, to establish the seventh day of the week as a holy day prior 
to the institution of the Old Covenant. And so while the Old Covenant Israelites were indeed to keep the seventh day holy, really and truly so were everyone else. Let's look a little closer now at the Sabbath significance with respect to creation. In Genesis 2-3 we read that God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Exodus 20 picks up on this statement in the Ten Commandments and says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So, why were the Israelites to keep the Sabbath, according to Exodus 20? At a very basic level, they were to follow God's example of working the first six days, and resting on the seventh. But what was God doing on the seventh day? No work at all? No. In John 5, verses 16 and 17, we read this. This, is why, this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because He was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. So God has never stopped working. What was He doing? Well, in John 5, the context was Jesus healing someone. In other words, a work of mercy. Also, God has never stopped doing works of necessity. This is the claim of Jesus in John 5, that God has always been doing some work, namely mercy and necessity. God's mercy is over all that He has made, and it's not as if every Saturday God's mercy dried up. Nor is it as if every Saturday God stopped doing all works of necessity. In Hebrews chapter 1, we read that the Son of God through whom all things were made, quote, upholds the universe by the word of His power. So if the Son of God stopped upholding the world every Saturday, what would happen? It would fall. That's the opposite of uphold, right? So in what sense did God stop working in Genesis 2-3? He stopped the work of creation. And why did He stop the work of creation? It's a simple answer. Because He was finished. And what did God do? Genesis 1 and verse 31, which is the last verse of Genesis chapter 1, it says, God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. God finished His work on the sixth day, saw that it was very good, and stopped and rested from His work on the seventh and made that day holy. What is the implication here? That God wanted to mark the completion of His work of creation. 
And then he wanted to mark it not just in his own diary, so to speak, so that he would remember his completed work of creation every seven days, but he instituted it for humans so that humans would mark it in our diaries, so to speak, that we would remember every seven days God's work of creation. The people that he made were to set aside every seventh day to commemorate and celebrate God's work of creation. Romans chapter 1, verses 20 to 23 says this, God's invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. Okay, think about it like this. Humans were intended to do every seventh day the opposite of what Romans 1 talks about. And they were to honor God as God and give thanks to Him and worship the Creator rather than the creature. That's the first significance that we will talk about tonight attached to this Sabbath day, which is taught to us in Exodus 20. Because God is the Creator. Because He finished His work of creation and He marked that day as a recurring celebration of His work of creation. Therefore, Israelites in Exodus 20 observe the Sabbath day every seventh. Now let's examine its developed significance, the Sabbath's developed significance with respect to the Israelites' rescue from Egypt. In the giving of the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy chapter 5, which is the other place that they're given, Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5, the Sabbath command is still included in the Ten, of course. The the Ten Commandments are still the same Ten Commandments. But the reason attached to the keeping of the Sabbath is different in Deuteronomy chapter 5 than it is in Exodus chapter 20. Deuteronomy 5 verses 12 to 15 says, Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So the Sabbath was in effect before the Israelites were ever rescued from Egypt, and humans were to worship God as Creator, Recognizing Him, giving, honoring Him as God, worshiping the Creator rather than the creature, giving thanks to Him, the opposite of what Romans 1 talks about, in this cycle of every seven days. But once the Israelites were rescued from Egypt, 
an additional dimension was added to the Sabbath. An additional aspect that should be included in Sabbath observance, in addition to worshiping God as creator, was worshiping God as rescuer. Because the Israelites had been brought out of Egypt, they were not only to worship God as creator, but they were to worship him as their redeemer. So now the Israelites are recognizing and celebrating God every seventh day, every Saturday, as creator and as redeemer. Hope you can see by now that the Israelites weren't supposed to use the day simply to catch up on sleep or to sit around and play cards or dominoes or whatever they did back in those days. The Sabbath was not a rest of inactivity, but it was a rest from other work to do the work of worship. Now, to be sure, physical rest was part and parcel of it. For example, um, in Deuteronomy, which we just read, it says, do this so that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. Right? It does seem to be uh, this aspect of taking a break. Because you're not slaves, you don't have to work like slaves anymore. So take a break. But more than that, there was this commemoration of the work of creation and this commemoration of the work of redemption. The Israelites were to call to mind every seventh day God's work of creation and God's work of redemption. And Leviticus 23 tells us that it was one of God's holy convocations. I had to look up convocations in the dictionary, to be honest, because though I had heard the word before, I don't recall hearing it outside of the context of graduating from school. I don't know if you guys use that word here in Barbados, but in Canada, often you'll say, convocation is such and such a day, and it's the day that everybody walks across the stage to get their diplomas. And so when I hear the word convocation, I think of all these students with their flat hats and their black robes walking across and getting a diploma. So I said, well, what is this meaning of this word convocation? And all it is is simply an organized assembly of people. So let's say that there's a car accident and people happen to gather to look at the car accident. That's not a convocation. But if you said, hey, let's get, for example, the leaders of all the businesses in Barbados together to deliberate about some piece of legislation that is before parliament. That would be a convocation. You're getting all of the business leaders together in a convocation to debate and to deliberate and discuss this issue. Or all of the church leaders get together to discuss something. That's a convocation. And so it's an assembly. The Sabbath, therefore, as one of God's holy convocations, was one of God's appointed times to assemble. And why? Remember, to celebrate God's work of creation and to celebrate God's work of redemption, to honor Him as God and to give thanks to Him for His creation and for His redemption of His people. This is why they were to assemble every seventh day. So if one of the Old Covenant Israelites said, don't be legalistic, I am resting from my normal vocation. Normally, I'm a blacksmith, but every seventh day I stop my smithing. 
and I take a break. But I'm too tired to assemble with the brethren. Was he keeping the Sabbath as he ought to? The answer is no. Because it wasn't merely a stopping, it was also an engaging in something else. There was to be a ceasing from normal vocations, but there was also to be a convocating and assembling together. Or if another said, don't be legalistic, I am resting from my normal vocation, but I will take a walk in the wilderness and connect with God in nature instead of assembling with the brethren. Was he keeping the Sabbath as he ought to? Again, no. Because not only were they to rest from their normal vocations, but they were to assemble together. Or if one said, yes, yes, I understand. We're to rest from our normal vocations and we're to honor God as creator and redeemer. So I will do that, but I'm more of an introvert. So I will do that at home in my own tent. And I will remember all of the things that I heard about God's work of creation. All the things Moses has taught us about God's creation. And I'll recall what my father told me about when God brought us up out of Egypt. But I'll do it at home in my own tent. Thank you very much. Was he keeping the Sabbath as he ought to? The answer is no. They were to rest from their normal vocations. Part of it was taking a break. They're not slaves anymore, so it's okay to take it easy. But they were to be engaged in the work of worship. Honoring God as creator and as redeemer. And not just doing so privately, but doing so in the assembly of God's people. So there was this expectation in the Old Covenant that you wouldn't rest in inactivity, but that you would rest from other work to do the work of worship. You can't do two things at once. And so you were to rest from this in order to do that. Matthew Henry says the sense of it is as follows. If it lie within your reach, you shall sanctify the Sabbath in a religious assembly. Let as many as can come to the door of the tabernacle. And let others meet elsewhere for prayer and praise and the reading of the law. So because the tabernacle was just a reasonably small tent for such a great assembly, obviously not everyone could go there. So probably like it is outside of a government office, there were crowds beginning to assemble at the tabernacle every Sabbath day, probably at 6 a.m., just waiting for that precious assembly to start in the central place of worship among God's people at the tabernacle. But if you slept in and didn't get there at 6 a.m., then your, your chance to be there right at, right at the center of things was lost. But you could still assemble with all the others among the Israelites who weren't there in the thick of things. You could call up your friends and your neighbors and say, hey, today's the day of assembly. Today's a holy convocation. Let's get together and pray and praise and think about God. Think about Him as Creator. Think about Him as Redeemer. Be with the saints on the Sabbath day. Now, obviously, some people would have been providentially hindered from assembling by reason of perhaps ceremonial uncleanness. You couldn't go in the tabernacle. If you were ceremonially unclean, you could meet up with others informally outside of the tabernacle if you were ceremonially unclean. But perhaps you were sick or had a disability of some sorts and you, you weren't able to get together for whatever reason. 
In such cases, Matthew Henry says again, whether you have opportunity of sanctifying it in a holy convocation or not, yet let it be the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. Put a difference between that day and other days in your families. And that is a rule that certainly all could keep. So every seventh day, the Old Covenant Israelites were to celebrate and to worship God for His work of creation and redemption. This was essentially the meaning of the Sabbath in its Old Covenant context. Now, let's explore its developed significance with respect to Christ. And I want to remind you that in the beginning, in Genesis 2-3, right there, boom, seventh day, right there, that's when God instituted the Sabbath. And in the beginning, humans were to honor God as God and give thanks to Him and worship the Creator rather than the creation, right there from the beginning. Before the Israelites had ever been rescued from Egypt, that was the only reason for the Sabbath. That gave the Sabbath day its flavor. Simply creation and honoring God as God, giving thanks to Him as God and worshiping the Creator rather than the creature. The Sabbath developed significance as the Israelites were brought out of slavery in Egypt. God added a layer to it and taught the Old Covenant Israelites, not only should you honor me as creator, but you should also honor me as redeemer on the Sabbath. And so the Sabbath was instituted at creation, but its significance can develop historically as new things happen in history. And so with that principle in mind, let's consider the Sabbath's developed significance with respect to Christ. And first of all, let me say that the Sabbath commandment is not abrogated. That is, made irrelevant in the New Covenant. Again, unlike other holy days that we will study in coming weeks, the Sabbath given First, in Leviticus 23, is unique among the other holy days in that it wasn't instituted at the institution of the Old Covenant. It was instituted way back in creation, and therefore it wasn't for the Old Covenant people alone. It was for humans. Therefore, it, unique among the other holy days of Leviticus 23, is included in the Ten Commandments, which is a summary of that which is moral, not just for the Old Covenant people of Israel, like the civil laws or the ceremonial laws, but for all people. And therefore, since both Jesus and Paul endorse the Ten Commandments as having abiding validity and being a summary of God's holy standard in Luke 18 and Romans 13, respectively, the Sabbath has abiding validity even outside of the Old Covenant. It predates and postdates the Old Covenant. And it has applicability not only in Israel, but to the ends of the earth, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded, which includes all ten of the Ten Commandments and not just nine, as some teach. The question isn't, in view of what, in view of Jesus and Paul's endorsement of the Ten Commandments, the question isn't whether there is a Sabbath to be kept, but the question is when there is a Sabbath to be kept. And tonight is not the night that I'm trying to belabor that 
point or really hash it out for you. I've, I've done that at length in other sermons. You could go back and you could listen. All of our sermons are up on our website. And you could go back and listen to when I preached on the fourth commandment in our Ten Commandments series. I've dealt with it at other times. I'm pretty sure I've preached on Colossians 2, 16 and 17 here at CRBC. Uh, I've preached at various times on Romans 14 also. I can't remember whether I have here at CRBC or not. You could go back and listen to some of those. You could ask me a question another time, but I'm not really trying to belabor that, that point tonight. But suffice it to say that I don't believe, and the Reformed tradition doesn't believe, that those passages negate the abiding validity of the Ten Commandments. My purpose tonight is simply to show you how just as the Sabbath commandment was, or just as the Sabbath was instituted at creation, but developed significance when Israel was rescued from Egypt, I just want to show you that it developed significance again when Christ came and fulfilled His word. And that informs the way that we understand the commandment at this juncture in history. So just as Abraham, for example, obviously wouldn't have observed the Sabbath day in the, uh, wouldn't have observed the aspect of the Sabbath day of commemorating Israel's rescue from Egypt because that hadn't even happened yet. So the old covenant Israelites wouldn't have observed the Sabbath day in light of Christ's finished work because that hadn't even happened yet. Just as there was development even in the Old Testament from Genesis 2-3 to the Israelites' rescue from Egypt and then there was an additional aspect to it. So the Sabbath day is developed again in light of Christ's finished work and that's what I want to explore with you now. If we assume there is a Sabbath to be kept, which we at CRBC do assume, based on Jesus and Paul's remarks of the law, on the law in Luke 18 and Romans 13, then the question that we ought to be asking is not, is there a Sabbath, but when is the Sabbath? And the answer becomes quite apparent when we consider the significance of the Sabbath in the Old Covenant, and then consider the Sabbath again in view of the work of Christ. So what is the significance of the Sabbath in the Old Covenant? This is what we've been dealing with in our sermon tonight so far. Somebody shouted out. What is the significance of the Sabbath in the Old Covenant? Right. I hear, I hear a smattering of voices, but I'm hearing it correctly. Commemorating the work of creation and redemption. Specifically, the original creation... And redemption from what? Slavery in Egypt. That was the significance of the Sabbath in the Old Covenant. Now, let me ask you this. Which is greater? The work of the first creation or the work of the new creation? The new creation, right? Would you rather live in the Garden of Eden or would you rather live in the new heavens and the new earth. Right. It's greater. The new creation is greater than the original creation. Now, which is greater? The work of rescuing the Israelites from slavery in Egypt or rescuing mankind from sin? Right. The history of the world, someone said, I can't remember who it was, but the history of the world is not U-shaped 
but J-shaped. Okay, so picture a capital U and a capital J in your mind. If Eden is the uh, top of one side of the U, what Christ is, not, is doing is not rescuing us from our fall into sin and bringing us back to as good as it was before in Eden. That would be a U-shaped trajectory of history. But if Eden is the point on the J before it dips, what Christ does is rescue us from guilt and misery and take us to something better than Eden. Better than before. Okay, so the history of the world is not U-shaped, but J-shaped. It's going to be better than the beginning. We're not just going back to the way it was before, before the fall of mankind into sin. We're going to something better. The new heavens and the new earth is better than Eden. And our, the state of being that we will be in in heaven is actually better than the state of being that Adam and Eve were in, in the beginning. Because Adam and Eve had the possibility of either sinning or not sinning. And R.C. Sproul is coming to mind. I didn't have this in my notes, so forgive me if I botch it. But you know R.C. Sproul and his chalkboard. Passe pacare, passe non pacare. Which in the way that only he could do, made Latin completely intelligible and understandable to simpletons like us. The possibility of sinning and the possibility of not sinning. Right? And I'll never forget that. Passe picare, passe non picare. Were Adam and Eve and dwelt with the Holy Spirit? No. What Christ does is He rescues us from our guilt and misery and He establishes us in our glorified state after we die and rise or for those of us who are alive when Jesus comes back we are just changed in the twinkling of an eye he establishes us in a state of passe no non passe peccare all right he establishes us in a state where it is not possible for us to sin and unlike Adam and Eve in the garden we will have the Holy Spirit within us forever. This is what Jesus teaches us in John chapter 16. He is with you already, He tells His disciples at that time, but implicitly, after Pentecost, He will not only be with you, but in you, and that forever. And so, Adam and Eve were in a state of passe percare, passe non percare, possible to sin, possible not to sin. In that glorified state, we will be in a state of non posse peccare, not possible to sin. And they were without the Holy Spirit, and He will be not only with us, but in us forever. And so, we are actually going to be in a better creation, and in a better state than Adam and Eve were in, in the Garden of Eden. And so the history of redemption is not U-shaped, but is J-shaped. It's going to be better in the end than it was in the beginning. The Sabbath is a glory-getting day for God. 
And it's a glory-giving day for us. And at every stage of human history, that holds true. So when all God had done in human history was create, all there was to commemorate and to worship God for it with respect to His works, He's always worthy of our worship in terms of who He is. But in terms of what He has done in history, all there was to worship Him for was creation. And so God instituted the Sabbath in the beginning. For now, just worship me as creator. In Genesis 2-3. Every seventh day, honor God as God. And give thanks to Him. And worship the creator rather than the creature. When God does this incredible work of rescuing the Israelites from Egypt, now He adds a dimension to it. He says, not only worship me as creator, but also worship me as redeemer as the one who rescued you from Egypt. After the finished work of Christ, it wouldn't be right or natural to overlook and bypass Christ by attributing pre-Christian significance to the day. Rather, we ought to attribute Christological significance to the Sabbath. Because the greatest work of creation that God has done at this point is beginning the work of recreation. Jesus Christ was raised from the dead as what? The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep in Him. And the first fruit is like the first apple that you get off the tree at the right season, which is a harbinger of more apples to come. So Christ's resurrected, glorified body is a harbinger of more resurrected, glorified bodies to come. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. You see, and so we're in this overlap of the ages where we're still living in the old creation. But Jesus is a foretaste of a new creation to come. Jesus in his resurrected body is a foretaste of a new creation to come. And the new creation to come is on the basis of Christ's finished work. That because of what Jesus has done, we have a hope that all things will not be destroyed. That we will not be punished forever. But that we can be reconciled to God and that He will make a new heavens and a new earth not only for our souls to dwell in, but for our glorified and resurrected bodies to dwell in. It's all on the basis of Jesus' finished work. When we are there in that new creation, that new heavens and that new earth, we're not going to say, man, what Jesus did for us is cool, but what about this? Look around. This new creation is awesome. So, I mean, yeah, that stuff that Jesus did for us is cool, but look at this new creation. You see, it's because of what Jesus did for us that we will be there and that there will be a new creation for us. And so it's not separate from Jesus, but it's because of Jesus, right? And when we are totally free, not only from the guilt and penalty of our sin, which we already are if we are trusting in Christ Jesus, 
But when we are free, even from sinning at all, when we are made perfect and we no longer sin, and we're no longer in a space where people sin against us, when we are what we should be and when everyone around us is what they should be, and we are all non passe precare, and we're in that perfect world, rescued from sin, we're going to go, what a great rescue Jesus has accomplished for us. You see? And so, when did Jesus finish His work? When He came out of the tomb. That first day of the week. That was when His work was completely done. When Jesus had died on the cross and went into the tomb and there was no longer any claim of death on him to hold him Jesus finished his work and rose And that was the first day of the week. The finished work of Christ is the basis for the new creation and for the redemption of mankind. He rose on the first day of the week. His death was behind Him. And He now lives forevermore. Saturday He was dead, you realize? Sunday he was alive. That was behind him. It was completely finished. When Jesus cried out, it is finished on the cross, of course. Atonement was made for us. And his earthly messianic work, his life was finished. And he had completed all that the Father had given him to do. But obviously it was necessary that he actually died. And it was necessary for whatever reason that he remain in the grave until Sunday. That's what I mean when I say it's finished. I'm not trying to denigrate Christ's work on the cross. But Sunday, it was no longer necessary for him to be dead. And he was alive. And as Hebrews puts it, he ever lives to make intercession for us. Sunday was that day when everything that he had to do by way of his death was completed and finished. And when His work of resurrection was finished, and when the new creation broke in to this present creation, it was that first Sunday. Jesus rose on that day. And so it is most fitting, given the fact that Jesus' death and descent into the place of the dead was finished and completed that first Sunday and he rose it is most fitting that we should worship on Sundays that the glory giving day on our part and the glory getting day shift from Saturdays to Sundays because creation 1.0 was commemorated on the Saturday and redemption 1.0 
was commemorated on the Saturday. But it's most fitting that we should commemorate new creation or creation 2.0 on Sunday and redemption 2.0 on Sunday. But I don't rest the case for the change of the day simply on what seems to be most fitting, but rather upon what the apostles uniformly taught the New Testament church, which was evidently to worship on Sundays, which is what Christians have been doing since the apostolic age. Now, I admit that that's the weakest point and the hardest point to get over in adopting a view that Sunday is the New Covenant Sabbath. That was the point I struggled with the most as I was coming to this position myself. But if we grant that there is a Sabbath, which we ought to based on Jesus and Paul's affirmation of the abiding validity of the Ten Commandments, and then we ask when is the Sabbath, um, we see that the apostles taught the early church uniformly to worship on Sundays. And of course they had the authority from Christ to teach and to rule in His name. And then when we consider the significance of the Sabbath, namely that in the Old Covenant it was to commemorate creation and redemption, and that prior to the Israelites' rescue from Egypt, it was actually only creation. So we see that God is free to add layers of significance to it. And we consider then that it was a glory-getting day for God and a glory-giving day for mankind. And at that point in history the most significant things to give God glory for and for God to get glory for was creation and the exodus from Egypt. It makes complete sense that it was on that day. And then when Jesus rose from the dead, inaugurating the new creation and completing the work of redemption, it makes complete sense that that was the layer of significance that God added at that juncture in history. And that the glory-giving day is therefore Sunday. And that the glory-getting day for God is therefore Sunday. Creation 2.0 and redemption 2.0. And it's satisfying enough for me. And it's been satisfying enough for the Reformed tradition. In fact, I think it's an inescapable conclusion if we apply that principle of good and necessary consequence. I admit that we don't see it explicitly in Scripture, that it's been changed from Saturday to Sunday. But when we start to think of what is able to be established by good and necessary consequence, in other words, what is the necessary implication of what we read in the New Testament, I think it is a firm conclusion. Anyway, moving on. Those who disagree with the historic reform position that I'm articulating here often argue that saying Sunday is the Sabbath takes away from the glory of Christ and puts us, quote, back under Moses. You ever heard that one? But properly understood, nothing could be further from the truth. Because what the historic reform position is, is that the Sabbath has always been a glory-getting day for God and a glory-giving day from mankind. And God has revealed His glory most clearly in the person and work of His Son. In creation 2.0 and redemption 2.0. Which are better than the first creation and the first redemption. And so through the apostles, God does not negate a designated day of worship. But rather sanctifies Sunday instead of Saturday in the post-Christ era. In keeping 
with his design to glorify himself in and through the person and work of his son. And so it is a Christological Sabbath, a Christ-exalting and a Christ-glorifying day of worship that we are to set aside to give glory to God for creation 2.0 and for redemption 2.0. So we see, we've seen tonight that the Sabbath was always intended to be more than a day of inactivity, but rather a day of celebrating and worshiping God. Before Christ, people were to worship for the original creation, and the Israelites were to worship for their rescue from Egypt. But after Christ, we are to worship for the new creation coming through Christ's work and for the rescue from sin that He has won for us. It's still, therefore, a holy convocation to be kept by God's people. But it has taken on a Christological focus at this stage of history after the work of Christ has been finished. So let us worship Sunday by Sunday and glorify God for His work of recreation and redemption through Christ Jesus.